Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Up until this point in, in this uh, book, we've seen the rise of Saul as king. And starting with last, the last chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we started to see his decline because he failed to trust in God. He, he um, only partially obeyed God. There were some other things that le- led up to this, but, but this was kind of the last straw. And this is where Samuel said to Saul, uh, your kingdom will not remain with you. You will not have a dynasty. It will go on to another. And it will it'll go on to a man who is better than you. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what happens when God's leader fails? That is, the people had appointed this leader, but God was the one who anointed him and put him in this position to, to, uh, to succeed. And the answer is that God's work still goes on. What we're going to see here is now a, a, cross, a crossing of, of what takes place. You have the decline of Saul's kingdom and the rise of, of David's kingdom. Or if we could, we could think about it like an X here that kind of goes, Saul is declining, David is rising. And, and David is now introduced for us here for the first time in chapter 16. And, and really, I think much of 1 Samuel is just a contrast between these two men how they respond to God, how they respond to sin, how they respond to various situations. And we want to to learn from both of these men, but also see what kind of man that God is looking for. In this chapter, David will be anointed as king for the first time. He's going to be anointed a couple other times later. But this chapter really serves as an intersection between the failed leadership of King Saul and the the successful uh, future leadership of of the future King David, a man after God's own heart. So let me read our text for us tonight, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for he will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. 
Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful, labor, uh, a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful, music, a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. And then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about... Whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Can you uh, advance that verse one for me? All right, so tonight we're going to see that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And again, I think we could really take this theme and see this woven throughout the entire text of 1 Samuel. That is, that that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud like Saul, and he gives grace to the humble like David. And and here we kind of see them together side by side for the first time. And we see a couple of things in this passage that we want to, to address. First, God replaces the people's king with his own king. God replaces the people's king with his own king. Verses 1 to 12. Samuel doesn't know what to do. Remember that that, it's, uh, that God was was grieving in chapter 15. He was grieving that he had made Saul king over Israel, and now we have here Samuel grieving that Saul has been rejected as king. Now it's not clear how much time has elapsed between the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 15. It could have been a few days. It could have been 12 years. But but in verse 1, Samuel is grieving over God's rejection of Saul, and God asks Samuel a question. Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over him because I have rejected him? It's over. There's no more help for him. And, and so God is going to bring about a new king, a better king. And God gives a, a gentle rebuke here, I think, in verse 1. He says, Fill your horn with oil. In the second part, I will send you to Jesse, for I have selected a king from among myself, for, for myself. It's time for God to appoint a new king. And, and the problem for Samuel is that he is not only grieving over Saul, this man who looked like he had all the promising features of being God's leader, but also that, that now Israel was without a king and Samuel was fearful for his own life. Do you see that in verse 2? Samuel said, how can I go and anoint this new king? This is what he's asking. How can I do this? Because if Saul hears of it, he will kill me. You see, Samuel was afraid that if and when Saul found out, 
that Saul would have both Samuel and the newly anointed king killed. When Samuel promised Saul that another king was coming, and it was his neighbor in chapter 15, it, it, would, it would not be unlikely for Saul to appoint some spies to follow Samuel around. That is, that wherever Samuel went, he wanted to see what was going on because as soon as he anointed this new king, then Saul was going to do his part to have him killed. It's not much different than when Herod finds out that the new king's going to be born. This Jesus, the king of the Jews. I want to know about it. And, and when you find him, let me know so that I too can come and worship him. Right? And, and so this king, I think, was very threatened. Samuel recognized this. And, and yet, um, God helps Samuel here. Notice how God helps him in the second part of verse 2. He says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So his ultimate purpose, Samuel's ultimate purpose, is to anoint a new king. But God says, when you go, tell them you're going to make a sacrifice. Now, what God is doing is not telling Samuel to lie. He's not covering for him in that way. But he is hiding some information from people who, who uh, don't need to hear it. He's concealing some things like Jesus did with the parables, right? He, he taught because there are people who are ever seeing but never perceiving. They're ever hearing but never understanding. And so I'm going to speak in parables in a sense so that I don't uh, increase their judgment is what Jesus was doing. Because the more that they know and the more that they reject Him, the, the greater their judgment will be. And so God here is doing what Jesus would do later in the Gospels, which is to conceal information that's not necessary to know for, from some people. And in fact, what Samuel was doing was offering a sacrifice. So it's not like he was doing something uh, that he said he wasn't doing. He was, in fact, making a sacrifice. Well, in verses 3 through 5, God chooses a king from Jesse's fam family. And if we were to go back to the last six verses of Ruth, then you would find a genealogy that goes from Perez to Jesse. And from that, we know that Jesse's grandparents were whom? Do you remember? I'll give you a hint. It's in the book of Ruth. Yes, it's Boaz and Ruth. And, and we also know from Matthew 1.5 that, that uh, Boaz's father, or uh, Boaz's mother, excuse me, was Rahab. And so in this line, you have Perez to Rahab to Ruth and Boaz, then a couple generations down to Jesse and then to David. See, God was going to choose a king from a most unlikely of families. And God already had in mind who this young man would be. Well, Samuel travels for 10 miles from Ramah to Bethlehem in verse 4. And he, he's greeted by the elders of the gate. And, at the gate, excuse me. And, and Samuel is, is fearful of what Saul might do. But notice that the, that the elders are fearful of Samuel. The second part of verse 4 says, And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? Now, they could have been fearful of him because they heard that Samuel had just killed Agag and cut him into pieces in chapter 15. Or they could have been fearful of associating with Samuel because what would happen if the king found out that these elders were complicit with Samuel in his attempt to anoint a new king? That could be the reason. But I think it's actually the first option. They were concerned about Samuel because he is a man of God. That is, he's appointed by God and he's already done some serious, he's taken out some serious judgment on people who've opposed God. And so they're a little bit fearful of what could happen. In verses 6 to 10, we see that God rejects the older sons. God rejects the older son. 
of the older sons. And this is a bit surprising because, again, according to um, human intuition, based on what goes on in the ancient Near East, we would expect that the oldest son, the one who's been around the longest, who has the, the, the birthright, the, who, who has all, he's the, inheritor, the, the heir of the, his father's blessings, you would expect him to be the one that would receive uh, the anointing. And that's kind of how we look at leaders today as well. The best leaders seem to be the leaders who have the best looks, the best speaking voice, the best charisma. But God is not that superficial, is He? Notice what He looks for in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at His appearance or at the height of His stature because I have rejected Him. That is, I have rejected this oldest son, Eliab. For God sees not as man sees, For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel is looking at his outward appearance and he's saying, listen, you know, he kind of fits the bill. You know, Saul, he was there, but he had a little little, uh, problem, a few problems. But if you look at him in comparison to everybody else, he was kind of built. He He was taller than everybody else. And so it makes sense that he would be the king. And the Lord says, no, that's not what I'm looking for and Eliab's not going to do for me. I'm not concerned about how people will be perceived as much as, a per, as I am concerned, God's saying, about how that person really is, who they really are. And you know, as humans, we are imperfect evaluators because we can't see as God sees. And so, for example, next week when we go to choose a deacon or some other officers for the church, we can't know all that's going on in the heart, but we can evaluate people based on what we know and what we've seen. But you see, God can look into the deepest recesses of the heart. He can know who the person is. And what God is looking for, as we'll see later, is He's looking for a person who is humble. And that's why this choice of David is so perfect by God. What, what made David so much better than his older three brothers that seemed to fit the bill, or even his older seven brothers? Turn back to chapter 15, verse 28, because I want to show you that that he was going to be a better choice than Saul. Chapter 15, notice verse 28. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Saul, today, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. So now we need to, to understand why. Why is it that David, because we're, start, we're starting to make this contrast here between Saul and David. What is it that makes David so much more appealing to God than Saul? Turn back to chapter 13. Chapter 13. And verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So here, this is Saul. And, and he, he was supposed to be sacrificing. He was supposed to wait for Samuel to get there to sacrifice. And Saul couldn't wait any longer. He waited out the full seven days. And apparently on the seventh day... When Saul or Samuel said he was supposed to come, he didn't come. And so Saul says, I can't wait anymore. The Philistines are, are, are closing in. I need to do something. And so he sacrifices without Samuel being there. And God says, 
you know what, your kingdom's over. Okay, I'm taking it away from you. And I'm giving it to someone, notice verse 14, who is a man after my own heart. You see, what God was looking for was not something that had to do with outward appearance. He wasn't looking for someone who spent a lot of time trying to be more charismatic or spent more time trying to be commanding with his voice. Instead, God was looking for a man who spent his time, and apparently while tending sheep, getting to know God's mind. Do you see that in the verse? He is a man after my own heart. He's, he's, a, my, he's a man after my mind. He knows me. You see, David was a steward of God's resources. And that's why David would make such a great king, because he understood God's heart. He understood the desires of God. He recognized, even as a young man, that he was a steward of God's resources. Whether it be something seemingly as menial as his father's sheep, or later on, the whole nation of Israel. He was a steward of God's resources. And so the way that David looked at it is, these things that, that I have been entrusted with do not belong to me, but they belong to God. And I'm simply His steward. I need to use what God has given me in the way that He wants it to be used. I'm, that's what it means to be a man after God's own heart, a person after God's own heart. So if David was a steward of his father's sheep and a steward of, of God's nation, Israel, then what is it that a steward is supposed to do? Do you remember 1 Corinthians 4.2? It is required of, st- of stewards that a man be found what? Faithful, or as Nasby puts it, trustworthy. And as we watch David respond to various situations, the constant refrain that will be played over and over again by him is that he needs to respond to God with faithfulness. So do you know when he's opposed by his enemies, his main response is not, you know, I need to figure out how I need to save face and make sure that people receive me well. His main responsibility is now that I'm being opposed by my enemies or, or by God's enemies, then how am I going to steward God's resources faithfully? Or even when, when I grievously sin of, against God, how can I steward God's resources from this point on? I can't go back and change what's happened. But, but the resources that God has given to me, how can I steward those for His purposes? Because that's what I am. I'm a steward. And it's required of me as a steward to be found faithful, trustworthy, and so the reason that God chose David and the reason that, that, that um, turn back to chapter 16, the reason that David was so much better than Saul was because he was a man after God's own heart. I don't know if I have these on here or not. No, I don't. Um, man after God's own heart. He is a steward of God's resources. And then notice verse 18 of chapter 18. Uh, chapter 18, sorry. Chapter 16, verse 18. Too many numbers running around my head. Chapter 16, verse 18. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have a son of Jesse, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So it's not only that he understood God's heart, he understood God's mind, he stewarded God's resources well, but he also was a man who had the Lord with him. This is a key feature to being a, a man who's going to be faithful to God. He needs to have God with him. Well, in verses 8 through 10, God rejects not only Eliab, um, but then he moves on to reject Abinadab and Shammah 
and then Jesse's four other sons. So for a total of seven sons, these seven sons walk before Samuel and God says, no, those aren't it. None of these are the one that I have chosen. Now, some of you may have been thinking that David is the youngest of seven sons, but but actually if you look at this text, it it appears that he is the eighth son. And the reason that, that you might think that he's the seventh is because in another passage, 1 Chronicles 2, there's a genealogy there and they only list seven sons. So probably one of them died and wasn't able to to receive any of the inheritance. That's probably why um, you're thinking that way. All right? So if you thought he was the youngest of seven, you were partially right. In verses 11 and 12, God chooses the youngest son. He chooses the youngest son. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, Well, there's actually one more. He's the youngest, and but he's tending sheep. And Samuel said, Send him and bring him for... He will not sit down until he comes here. In other words, I'm not going to go anywhere until I see this one. Because God said it was going to be from your household and I haven't seen all the sons yet. And so God made his choice on the basis of what mattered most to him. And that was the condition of David's heart. David was a humble man. He was concerned about God's priorities and God's desires. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. The next part of the chapter, the rest of the chapter, really is, is given over to this changing of the guard. And really, this is going to be the rest of 1 Samuel. The, the rest of this book is going to be given to this changing of the guard. Saul hangs around for a really long time. We would kind of hope that David would, well, he's already anointed as king here. And here we're going to see he receives the Holy Spirit. Saul has the Spirit removed from him. So why not just allow David to be king now? And, and uh, that's actually one of the questions I want to answer. So three questions in this section I think we need to answer. First, how can the Spirit of the Lord come and go? Verses 13 and 14. How can the Spirit of the Lord come and go? Notice in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. So now we see the Spirit coming on David. And notice, from that day forward. So it seems like there's never a day where David was without the Spirit. But notice verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So that's where I get this first question. How can the Spirit of the Lord come on David and then depart from Saul? In verse 14. So we need to understand what the text is not talking about. This is not talking about an attitude. Right? Lowercase s, spirit. That, that, that this spirit, this attitude came on David and this attitude left Saul. That's not what it's talking about. And the reason we know that is because it is the spirit of the Lord. And this is the same kind of phrase that we saw throughout uh, much of Old Testament history. right? We saw it with Moses and Joshua and the judges. And then we saw it on Saul even, that the spirit of the Lord came mightily on Saul to be able to accomplish what he wanted. So what this is not talking about is some kind of attitude. And I would also suggest that this has nothing to do with salvation. That is, that the Spirit came on Saul and that he was saved, and then it, it, was, it departed from Saul in verse 14, and so now he's no longer saved. And we believe that that's not the case because the Scriptures teach otherwise that, that those who are held in the Father's hand, will not leave the Father's hand. Right? All that the Father has given to me... Um, uh, I'm sorry, John 10. I better just turn there. 
whenever I start butchering a text, it's better just to turn there. So let me do that. You can join me if you want. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father is given to them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What God starts in a person, He continues and finishes. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 31-39, right? That there is not height, nor depth, nor, nor uh, things above, things below, angelic powers, demons. No created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So, so when you become a Christian, when you are saved, that that goes on forever. That goes on eternally. So that's what, not what this can be talking about. There's no way that Saul could have been saved and then lost his salvation. Instead, what it means that, that the Spirit of the Lord came on David or it came on Saul earlier and now departs from him is that the Spirit gave some kind of special ability to these leaders who were ruling over God's people. During the, this time... Israel was a theocracy. That is, they, they had God. It was basically God ruling them, and He ruled them through one leader, generally. And the first time that we see the Spirit coming on mightily here is, is, in Mo, is with Moses in Exodus, and then it later comes on the 70 elders, and then it comes on Joshua, and then it comes on the judges. And you see it with Samson. The Spirit of the Lord comes on him mightily, and he... He's able to protect the people and bring them back to a place where they're humble before God. And now we see it with Saul and David. And so there are several reasons I know that this is not talking about salvation and instead talking about this anointing that comes by the Spirit to help them fulfill some of their administrative roles. First, Saul was anointed by God's Spirit, but he was never a believer. Second, the Holy Spirit never leaves a person whom he saves. And then third... Do you remember in Psalm 51 when David prayed, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me? He was not praying that he would not lose his salvation. He was instead praying that that he would not receive this authority that he had as king over Israel. And so this is the special anointing that God gave to these leaders who ruled over his people. And God would help them to know what he wanted and how to lead the people. And do you remember when Saul was first appointed king, God said, Listen, the success of the people is dependent on the success of the leader. In some ways, they're interdependent. But, but in many ways, it's dependent upon Saul. That as he obeys me, then, then you will do well and you will prosper. So in most cases, this theocracy would be ruled by a king. And, and um, God used his spirit to uh, uh, give them ability and and uh, the empowering that they needed to administer the kingdom. So Samuel here in, in verse 13 anoints David as king. And I mentioned earlier that this is the first of three anointings. There's going to be another two anointings. One, when he's standing before Judah, he's going to be leader over them. And that's just a public anointing. He's, he's already uh, approved as God's man effectively. But then he's publicly anointed before Judah and then later in front of Israel. Those things will happen 15 to 20 years after these events. So that just puts into perspective how long David has to endure some of this terrorizing that comes from King Saul, 15 to 20 years before he can actually take over the throne.
And it's clear that Samuel knows that David will be king. And it seems to me that, that Jesse and David likely know that this, what this anointing is about. So they go there. Samuel, of course, knows what he's doing. And, it, and apparently Jesse does. But, but maybe his brothers don't know what's going on. And, and I'm I, uh, not sure how to take this exactly. But, but his, his brothers in 1 Samuel 17, when, do you remember, David goes to the battle line against Goliath. And his brothers are standing there, and his brothers are frustrating with them because they're like, you, you are so arrogant. You always have to get your nose in everything. Why do you have to know these things? Just go back home and, and take care of your sheep. And, and so very well could be that David's brothers either didn't know that, that David was going to be the king, or they were kind of like Joseph's brothers and that they were jealous of him. And um, so I'm not exactly sure who all knew that David was going to be the king at this anointing ceremony. So, first question, how can the Spirit of the Lord come and go? Second question that I think we need to address, and this is a little bit more difficult, and that is, how can God send an evil spirit? How can God send an evil spirit? Verses 14 to 16. Now, I want you to see here, first of all, that this, this actually does come from God. Notice the text here in verse 14. It says, an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And then verse 15, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing him. And then I think it's going to say it one more time, actually in verse 23. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul. And then the end of the verse, the evil spirit without the phrase there. So how can God send an evil spirit? Now, perhaps you don't like to think about God in this way. Maybe you like to think of God in a little box that only touches good and never touches evil, that He is so far removed from evil that He never touches it in any way. But that's why it's so critical that we think carefully about the Scriptures as we study through them. Notice the text says, an evil spirit from the Lord. So, in one sense, if you cringed in reading this statement, you're in good company. Because we in no way want to attribute any kind of evil to God. But we must understand this evil in relationship to God to the level that God allows us to understand it. So let me start with what this phrase does not mean. We know that this does not mean that God does evil in any way. God does not do evil according to Titus 1-2. He cannot lie he is completely holy, right? All the angels, when they see Him, that's the word that comes to their mind first. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so it cannot mean that God does evil. It also cannot mean that God is the source of any kind of evil. He's not the creator of evil. He's not the author of evil in that sense. What this phrase does mean Somehow, as I mentioned this morning, God stands behind evil without being fully responsible for it. That is, God permits evil to happen under the guardianship of His watchful care in order to bring about the exact purposes He wants. And is that not true from the rest of Scripture? I mean, you might be looking at this and saying, God sent an evil spirit to terrorize Saul. But can I appeal, uh, appeal to your knowledge of the Scripture to see if what I'm saying is true? Can you think of an example from Genesis when God clearly allowed evil to happen in order to accomplish something that was much greater? And what, was the, what, what am I thinking of? 
Okay, the serpent. That's not what I'm thinking of, but that's a good example. Thank you. God certainly allowed that. But I was thinking of Joseph. Right, Genesis 50, 20. What did, what did Joseph say to his brothers when after their father died, they thought, he's going to kill us. Now that dad's dead, he's, he's going to kill us. And Joseph said, no, guys. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, God actually planned that you would betray me and send me on ahead. Why? So that much good could happen and and God's name could be glorified. Is it possible that God can use evil to accomplish good? What about in Exodus? Can you think of an example when God used evil to accomplish good. That is, he, he, he permitted evil to accomplish good. What's the example in Exodus? The plagues on Pharaoh. We talked about that this morning. I raised you up for this very purpose so that my name would be known, that my power be, would be displayed and my wrath on sin. And so that all the pr- people of the world would know that I am a great God. See, God permits evil in order to accomplish good. What about in the poetic books? Can you think of any examples where God allowed, permitted evil to happen so that He could display His glory? Job. Right? Satan's torment of Job. Who initiated the conversation with Satan? Who initiated the conversation? It was God. He said, have you considered my servant Job? Do to him as you please. Only don't take his life. Do you know why? Because I'm going to use this situation to accomplish much good and to accomplish the recognition of my glory. What about in the prophetic books? How about Habakkuk? Do you remember? Habakkuk says, God, you need to judge Israel. And God says, I will judge Israel. I'm going to do it through Babylon, wicked Babylon. In fact, I raised this nation up for that purpose so that they would be they would serve, in a sense, as judges over Israel. And Habakkuk says, wait a second, you can't do that. How could you use a group more wicked than we are to judge us? And God says, I can do as I please. How about in the Gospels? Can you think of an example when God took something, permitted it to happen in order to accomplish good? Crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? The sinful people who crucified our Lord. Jesus had predicted... We, want, we need to recognize that was not an accident. Okay? Jesus predicted that He would be killed by sinful men at least three times before it happened. Proving that not only did God know about it in advance, but, but that God planned it. This is what Isaiah 53.10 says. It, it pleased God. This is several centuries before. It, it pleased the Lord to crush Him, Christ. Acts 2.23 says that God delivered them over, or I'm sorry, that these wicked men were delivered over by the predetermined plan of God. That is, the wicked people who killed Christ. Acts 4.28, same thing. Peter says that they would be able to do whatever God's hand, that's Pilate and, and Herod, that they would be able to do whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. Friends, if we're going to think rightly about God, we cannot ignore the difficult topics like the problem of evil. And what our text in 1 Samuel 16 is telling us is that in some way, God was behind the evil spirit that came on Saul. 
but not behind it in such a way that would impugn God's character. This evil spirit could have resulted in Saul being possessed by a demon, demon possessed, or it could have been simply a messenger that tormented him. And this second option seems more likely to me that, that he was some kind of an evil messenger that constantly tormented Saul. And this apparently led Saul to be just a, a really psychologically crazy person, causing him, as, as we'll see, to lose control of his emotions and apparently accept when David was playing his music, although he does lose control even then sometimes. So, how can God send an evil spirit? I think maybe a, a broader question would be, how can God allow anything that's evil? But God can do that because in His grand and glorious plan, He is accomplishing something good, isn't He? And in this case, He's actually bringing David to a place. And this really leads to our third question. He's bringing David to a place where he will be kind of an apprentice, apprentice to Saul to kind of see uh, practically how things work. So if we want to answer this question, this third one, why are David and Saul getting together, verses 17 to 23? Well, the immediate answer would be, well, because Saul needed a skilled musician who could soothe him while he's being tormented by the evil spirit. This is amazing that seemingly unbelieving men, it's not clear if his, his servants were unbelievers, but, but seemingly these men are just recognizing that, you know, something's going on here, Saul. You are different than you normally are. Something evil is, is uh, oppressing you, and you need to have some music to calm you down. So, so that's the immediate answer. He needs to be soothed musically. But the broader answer is that God was turning David into Saul's apprentice, I think. That, that David would learn some practical things that, was, that were necessary to be a king. Now, this is not a full-time job for David at this point. Uh, in fact, in chapter 17, verse 20, remember, he comes from tending his father's sheep to go out to the battlefield. So apparently Saul's letting him go. But, but the point is that David was, was chosen by God, but he still needed to learn his trade. And I think there's another broader answer as well that, that we could say, why are Saul and David coming together? And I think it's in order for David to learn and to demonstrate humility and loyalty. David needed to demonstrate humility and loyalty to Saul for the watching world. Amazingly, no matter how evil Saul was to David, I mean, put yourself in David's position. We would have been gone a long time ago, right? Somebody throws a spear at you, your boss throws a spear at you at work. I mean, you're going to stick around and say, no, no, I can't, I'm not going to turn him in, I'm not going to do anything, just wait and God will take care of it. David was unshakably loyal to Saul, even when David had a couple of occasions to kill him, and he didn't. And I think what Israel needed to see was that David was not working to usurp the throne of Saul, like, you know, hey, I'm going to be the king and I'm taking it over. But what Israel needed to see that over the course of 15 to 20 years, it was God who was causing David to rise up to this place of, of, of leadership. And David's, they needed to see that David's rise to power was not a result of public demand or national election, but that David was a king because God chose him. And God prepped him. So let me uh, conclude here with a couple of thoughts. First, the similarities and differences between David and Saul. And again, this is what we're going to see throughout 1 Samuel, but I thought I'd just uh, bring up a few of them here just to kind of see what God's bigger purpose in this is. Both men had small beginnings. They both were valiant warriors. 
They both committed grievous sins against God. So there are lots of similarities between the two men. But there are many differences as well. And I think one of the main points of 1 Samuel is to show this contrast between Saul and David. That, that when Saul sins grievously, or, or grievously, he responds not with repentance, does he? But rather, as we saw last time, bitterness and vengeance. And how does David respond? respond when he sins grievously? He responds with contrition and repentance. Against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. Saul's kingdom was in decline. Here we start to see it in this chapter. In fact, it was taken away from him. David's king is on the rise, or David's kingdom is on the rise. Saul is quick to disobey God. Remember, in chapter 13, he offered the burnt offering, which that was the initial time that Samuel said, "Your kingdom is being taken from you." He forced men to make a foolish vow in chapter 14. Don't eat anything all day. And then in chapter 15, he spared Agag and some of the animals. And yet, David was quick to obey God quick to turn back towards the God whom he loved. And the rest of this story is a story of contrasting characters. That Saul is jealous and treacherous in chapter 18. David's a faithful friend. Saul attempts to kill David in chapter 19. David protects Saul's life in chapters 24 and 26. Saul went to to battle with his own interests in mind, chapter 15, right? What can I collect to save for myself? How did David go to battle in chapter 17? With God's interest in mind. You know, the reason that we can't allow this Goliath to to stay is because he is defying the armies of the living God. Saul's kingdom is torn from him. David's kingdom is established forever. So there are many differences between these two men, but there's one constant with both of them, and that is that the Lord directs their steps. That God is behind it all. What does Proverbs say? I think it's chapter 22, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whatever way he wishes. It doesn't say the believing king's heart. The king's heart, even our king's heart, is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. And this should bring us great encouragement, shouldn't it? Because we can be confident that there is nothing in life that is a surprise to God. That God is never reacting in the way that we do. Like we're finding out information and then responding. But, but that God has planned it all and He's accomplishing His purposes through every single situation in life. And that all of His ways are right and good and designed to bring about glory to His name and to accomplish good in our lives. So really, the, the story of a contrast, the story of a great God that we serve that, that controls it all, final point that I want to make, which I think is the main point of the text, is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The thing that God is most concerned about in your life is humility. Humility does not look like, sometimes you think about humility as someone who's just always groveling and constantly apologizing and and being a pushover and and a a doormat and mealy-mouth sap type of a person. That's not humility. Humility instead is being willing to accept that you are not the most important person in the world. God is. And, and then treating other people as more important than yourself. Now, now sometimes that humility will look like weakness. But do you know there's also great strength in humility? Do you know Jesus was always humble? He was never proud and yet we see Him flipping tables over in the temple and rebuking the Pharisees to their face. 
Here's a definition I found helpful in C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility. He says, Humility is an honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So as we reflect on who God is, His perfect standard of righteousness, and our sinfulness, we start to see ourselves for who we really are. That's humility. And so in light of that, what can we learn from David and his life? What is it that God has called you to do? How do you view yourself? What is it that's your greatest desire? What do you want to see most? Is it that you want your agenda to be advanced or do you want God's agenda to be advanced? Do you want to be faithful? Do you want to be found faithful? Or do you want to be found likable? Or do you want to be found to be seen to look like faithful to other people? Right? See, the person who is humble and who's a person after God's own heart, the person who has the Lord's, Lord with him, the person who's, who stewards God's resources, a person that is concerned most about God's desires and pursuing them no matter what the cost. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would humble us this evening through your word. Help us to see ourselves clearly for who we really are. And Lord, may your word um, give us both a rebuke and also an encouragement tonight. Rebuke us by turning us away from our pride and our self-righteousness and encouragement by showing us that there is life and that there is hope in you. And that that this life of a Christian, of, of stewarding your resources, is possible and necessary for us as Christians. Help us to follow you, Father, all the way to the end. You have promised to, to lead us all the way to the end. May you hold us close to you and not let us go. Sever any tie that binds us to this world. And the only tie that we want to remain is the tie that binds us to your heart. Lord, we pray these things and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.